I'm Robert Cottrell, editor of The Browser. In a moment, I'm going to be talking to Felix Salmon, one of the world's preeminent financial journalists, whose writing appears in Wired and The New Yorker, and in his own newsletter at felix.substack.com. This podcast is brought to you by Gentle Reader, the reading app that I use every day to prepare the browser. Search Gentle Reader in the Apple App Store or go to gentlereader.com. So welcome to the browser podcast, Writers We Admire, in which we talk to writers we admire. Does and, what it says on the tin. And today I'm sitting, I'm delighted to say, with Felix Salmon, an old friend of the browser. Felix, thanks for making the time. It's a pleasure. What are the themes and the stories that excite you right now? If you were a mighty magazine editor with a core of reports at your disposal, where would you be sending them? Geographically, I, I'm totally obsessed with Texas right now. I feel there's a million stories in Texas and that a lot of the homegrown Texas media has not really survived the past few years very well, the Texas Tribune being the main exception. It's just an inexhaustible well of fascinating people, fascinating stories, incredible characters, big money, big land, big everything. And it's weirdly invisible to the coastal elites in the way that, say, Chicago isn't. Everyone's kind of very familiar with Chicago, mainly because it's one place. Texas, of course, is not one place. It's this monstrously huge state, which it's almost impossible to get a real feel for. Now, what about thematically? I mean, you were primarily a financial journalist most of your career. Is that still as exciting as it was, or is things rather dull? No, I think, I think I think finance is in a is thankfully in a boring phase. This is this is very good for everyone except for financial journalists. You know, we, we had all of the excitement we really needed around two thousand eight, and if so long as things remain kind of boring. I think the world is going to be quite happy about that. Uh, no one's really looking for finance to get interesting again. One of the reasons why there's so much talk about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies is precisely because there's nothing else to talk about. The, the, the bond markets, the stock markets, the markets in general, um, the global economy, all of these things are kind of pootling along in an unremarkable way and there's no real news there so people are naturally gravitating to cryptocurrencies just because there's craziness in news not because it's actually particularly inherently important or interesting so yeah so i think finance is boring that various regulators have done quite a good job of making banking boring and we should all be very happy about that and so personally one of the things i've done is i've kind of moved more to philanthropy and the various mechanisms people use to try and, as I put it, unfuck the world. That's, that's the thing which is kind of fascinating me right now. You're interested in grassroots philanthropy, aren't you, rather than uh, tycoon philanthropy? I'm interested in all of it. I, I'm interested in the scaling mechanisms. I'm interested in how our actions, whoever we are, whether it's individuals or tycoons or anything in between, can sort of come together and create actual change in the world. Um, and I'm interested in what's effective and what isn't. And I'm interested in a lot of the 
rhetoric surrounding effective philanthropy, interested in a bunch of the stuff that people are talking about, universal basic incomes, which are really cool right now, which is connected to unconditional cash transfers. And there's a whole bunch of interesting thought going on around there, which I think people maybe aren't quite as aware of as they should be. If I had a thousand pounds to spare right now, what should I give it to? Who should I give it to? There's a charity called Give Directly. And they just take that money and they give it to extremely poor people in mostly East Africa, in Kenya and Uganda. That changes life. So a thousand pounds given to a family living on less than a dollar a day in Kenya is truly transformative. And if I had a billion pounds to spare? Well, you could do the same thing. You could you could give a billion pounds to um, people in Kenya, but you could also start trying to use that money to systematize things so that you could try and bring entire populations up. Because a lot of because there are ways to give people either fixed incomes or fixed or, or just like one off amounts of money which transform their lives for, for years and decades to come. The one of the weird things about a billion pounds is that it's both an enormous amount of money and also, especially if you're talking about the developed world, not that much money if you compare it to say the annual budget of the New York Police Department or the New York Public School System. It's a fraction of that. So it's not like you can transform society with it. We both came up in old-fashioned print journalism. I hunger to have a newspaper delivered to my door again every morning. I really miss that. Do you? I, I gave up the newspaper, the final newspaper that I gave up was the New York Times, which I was getting delivered at weekends only, and then I gave up on that as well. At this point, I consider the print New York Times to basically be a, an upsell to the digital subscription. For weekly and monthly publications, it's a little bit different. There's something... Are you still getting anything on paper, anything on print? Yeah. I mean, I, I have a few. We, we get... New York Review of Books, um, New York Magazine, New Yorker, uh, anything with New York in the title, basically. We still get Texas Monthly for some reason. Weirdly, I don't know, there's, uh, as print has kind of died a little, I find a lot of those print books to be less exciting than they used to be. I feel like the, the art of putting together a print magazine it's, it was never easy. It was always very, very hard, and people put a huge amount of effort into it, and it was tough. And then the focus of all of that editorial skill, no matter which publication you're talking about, wound up moving much more to digital. And so you just don't have the bandwidth anymore to put together great magazines. Do you, do you think we screwed up as an industry unnecessarily? I mean, if you look at books, the e-book has bedded down as an innovation roughly on the scale of the paperback, you know, it's a chunk of the market, but it hasn't changed fundamentally what we think of as a book and what a book does. Do you think you know, newspapers and magazines, if they'd proceeded a little bit more gingerly, uh, could have hung on to their essence in the way that the book publishing industry has? No, because the cadence is just completely different. When, you, when you know, no one worries uh, too much. I mean, with the exception of the occasional fire and fury, no one worries too much about the amount of time it takes to print and distribute books to bookstores and then get them from bookstores to readers. You know, the time scale is it's just it's fine. You can do that. You can spend a year basically, and it's fine. But when you're talking about 
news cycle which is just incredibly fast and which is driven primarily by television, especially under the current president, that everything is now, 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 and you want to be able to read things now, now, now. The idea that people would be okay with waiting until the following morning to get a physical newspaper to find out what went on in the world. Like, no, I, I can't imagine a world like that. But the publications that we turn to now are much more ephemeral. There ought to be a shift in market power away from publications and towards writers. I mean, if I want to read Felix Salmon, I want to read Felix Salmon. I don't really mind where Felix Salmon is publishing. So, yeah, if this is my opportunity to, to plug my newsletter at felix.substack.com, go along and subscribe. Individual voices, groups as well, like, people are much more willing to subscribe to things these days. This is true of the browser, this is true of, say, Mallory Ortberg, who started The Toast. The Toast didn't work as a publication, but it kind of works as just a personal newsletter for her. This is true, true of, say, Ben Thompson, who has this great newsletter called Stratechery. And it's absolutely true of the New York Times, which now has a billion dollars a year in subscription revenue alone, like not even before it gets a single dollar in advertising. This is an amazing business. So there has been a change in the past couple of years where people are willing to pay for content in a way that they weren't a few years ago. Online. And do you think they're willing to pay the the authors, the creators of their content. I mean, I would certainly rather pay a writer directly than pay a publication in order to pay a bit of that on to a writer. So, yeah, it's a model which works, I think, at the margin. I don't think it's a great model for two main reasons. One is that writers really like predictability and health insurance and boring things like that and so they kind of like the idea of being an employee rather than being a micro entrepreneur and then the second thing which is the value of editors that editors are incredibly valuable they can add they can transform pieces they can transform writers if you move to your kind of model where it's it's writer based then i think what you wind up losing is a lot of the value that editors have historically added. I recently started a column at Wired and I can tell you that the experience of having really good editing before something goes up on the internet is just brilliant. And I would, I, and any writer who doesn't understand the value that adds is, is insane. Most editing that I've gone through, even if it's been painful, has ultimately made my stuff better. So you pulled off really quite a trick, which is to have a very strong personal brand, whilst also being embedded in publications, portfolio, Reuters, Fusion, which have given you uh, this kind of corporate support, corporate sustenance. Yeah, and I don't think that's that much of a trick. I mean, I think that that's true of, has been true of many people, many journalists. Like, journalists in general do well in newsrooms surrounded by other journalists and by editors. The great journalists of all time, you know, were definitely edited and were, and, and, and were part of a, an institution which put a lot of work into presenting their writing in the best possible light. And that's awesome. And one of the things we've really lost in the move away from print is the 
the spread, you know, the, the, the way that a piece physically looks on the page um, used to be super important. And, I've, and now it really isn't. And no matter how sort of glossy and produced a web article can be, ultimately most people are going to prefer to just read the text on Pocket or Instapaper. Now, you're also doing some podcasts for Slate, right? I have a podcast for Slate. It's called Slate Money. What is it with the second coming of podcasts? Here we are doing a podcast. There you are doing a podcast. Yesterday we talked to Stephen Dutton, who's doing a podcast that's getting 8 million downloads. Is that a shift in technology or a shift in taste? It's, it's a shift in technology and it's a behaviour shift. So... Everyone has a phone on them at all times now. Almost everyone has a pair of headphones with them at all times now. This is just the standard thing that you leave the house with. When you're leaving the house with a telephone and a pair of headphones, then you're very likely going to be listening to something. And there's this kind of virtuous cycle going on whereby the more great podcasts that people put out, the more people, more time people spend listening to them, the more time they spend in that podcasting app, whatever app it is, and the easier it becomes for them to find new podcasts, and the more likely they are to, when they pull out their phone to listen to something when they're on their commute or on their run or whatever it is, the more likely it is that they're going to hit that podcasting app rather than the music app or whatever they would otherwise listen to. So the consumption of podcasts has absolutely skyrocketed uh, that in turn has helped fuel a massive increase in ad budgets for podcasts it turns out that podcasts are unbelievably effective vehicles for advertising especially for um, direct response advertising and so advertisers are spending huge amounts of money on podcasts and getting returns on that investment and it's and it's really effective advertising. And so that just creates more demand for companies, whether it's Freakonomics or whether it's Panoply or whether it's Gimlet, to create more inventory, and it just grows and grows and grows. So, yeah, I, this is a wonderful sort of virtual cycle, which is creating a whole new medium. It did take a while to get here. You know, it certainly wasn't easy when you were talking about what happened 10 years ago when people had to download podcasts onto their iPods. You know, it was tough. Now it just happens seamlessly over the air. Um, most podcasts nowadays, I don't know if you know this, and this is, this is new in the past couple of years, but most podcasts nowadays actually stream. Even if it looks on your phone like it's sitting there and you've downloaded it, actually it's being streamed. And now, which is in turn created a whole world of programmatic advertising, dynamic ad insertion, you name it. So this is becoming a pretty sophisticated media industry. Is a win for audio podcasting here a lose for video? No, I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't know where people used to think that video would be consumed, but I'm pretty sure that it's not wherever podcasts are being consumed. Certainly not when you're driving your car, I guess. Right, exactly. So the car, like... The, the place that historically people have listened to the most audio is in the car and sort of poodling around the house. Oh. The place where people have historically watched the most video is actually sort of sitting on their couch watching the TV. If you're going to be watching TV, then, you know, the question is what's on that screen? What's on that television screen when you're watching TV? And 
we have had a massive disruption there where people are not watching linear TV and they are watching some kind of OTT service, probably Netflix. So that has happened. The video revolution has happened and a massive proportion of what we see when we watch video is now digital and not broadcast. This, a similar thing is happening with audio. You know, A massive proportion of what we listen to when we listen to audio is now podcast and not radio. But I don't think that it's fair to say that podcasting is replacing video, it's really replacing radio. You're a writer that we admire. Who are the writers that you admire? Who's excellent and undervalued? Well, excellence is easy. I, I, I'm not sure about undervalued. I feel that... I, you can tell me whether they're undervalued or not. I feel like excellent and everyone knows that she's amazingly excellent would be like Tashi Brodessa Agner, who's now at the New York Times, Katie Weaver at GQ. Um, excellent, maybe not quite as universally admired would be, I really like what Taylor Lorenz is doing at the Daily Beast. Obviously, in, in just pure writing food, the, the, the sheer storytelling ability. You can't touch someone like David Grant. New Yorker just has an amazing stable um, of, of writers who just keep on knocking out of the park. But again, you know, you have to realize that half of that is the writers and half of that is everyone else at the New Yorker, the editors there who are really making that happen and who are absolutely necessary for those stories to become what they are. Felix Salmon, thank you for an excellent conversation in this series, Writers We Admire. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider subscribing to the browser. We recommend the best writing worth reading every day. Go to thebrowser.com.